Hey, you look like someone I know, a phrase we often hear numerous times throughout our lives. However, for Andre Brown, that particular phrase and statements would wind up costing him 23 years of his life behind bars and was scheduled to do 17 more, if not for Oscar Michelin and Jeffrey Deskovic, who stepped in and helped free him from this wrongful conviction. Today on Crime and Entertainment, we discuss the wrongful incarceration of Andre Brown. The following podcast is a Carolina Boys production. Welcome back, everyone, to Crime and Entertainment. I'm your host, Hollywood Wade. Now, that opener right there should send chills up and down your spine, folks, because that's a saying that I'm sure everyone has had said to them at one point in their lives. And today, we're going to be discussing a case about a man by the name of Andre Brown. Now, Andre grew up in New York in the Bronx area. And during this particular time, there was a lot of turf war going on in the drug scene, and there was a shooting that happened. Two individuals were shot, and the guy that was running away was uh, wearing a mask. Uh, although somehow or another, we had some eyewitnesses that claimed Mr. Brown was indeed the suspect. Uh, they spotted him running, which as we get in here to this episode, you'll find out is this was physically something Andre was unable to do due to himself actually being shot years prior. Uh, his lawyer failed to mention that in the trial, uh, all these details we're going to get into folks. So I think a lot of times we say to ourselves, you know, Oh, well, someone's arrested. They must've did it. That is so not the case folks. Uh, a prosecutor's job, uh, is to put you in jail. That's that's at the end of the day. That's what their job is. Um, if you're brought before them, they assume you're guilty. I think the media paints a very bad picture when people are brought. And I'm not saying everyone that gets arrested is innocent. That's no way what I'm saying. But I think they don't stop and think that some of these cases could be built on false accusations, false allegations, and just basically sloppy and bad police work. And due to ineffective counsel, Andre Brown spent 23 years of his life wrongfully incarcerated. And thankfully, after all that time, his wife, who was helping him throughout this time, you know, not giving up, pressing forward, was able to contact a lawyer by the name of Oscar Michelin. And Oscar and Jeffrey Deskovic, who, if you remember our show, he was, I think, the first episode of 2023. Jeffrey Deskovic uh, spent 17 years behind bars. Um, They teamed up and got Andre out. Matter of fact, on that particular interview, Andre chimed in on a phone call. He'd only been out, I think, a few days. This was the first Christmas in 23 years he got to spend with his family. So sit back and listen to this story with Andre Brown, with Oscar Michelin, with Jeffrey Deskovic. And they break down just how they were able to free Andre from wrongful incarceration. Let's get started right now on crime and entertainment. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to crime and entertainment that we have here today. Three guests. One is a familiar face, uh, Jeffrey Deskovic, who joined us. He was actually our first guest of 2023, uh, done, uh, way, way, way too much time in prison, uh, wrongfully convicted. He's joined today 
by Oscar Michelin and Andre Brown. Andre actually joined us for a brief time on that interview. You had just gotten out of jail. Your wrongful conviction at that point overturned, uh, not fully exonerated yet, but hopefully that will be, you know, taking place here shortly. We're going to get into your story here today. Uh, first off, let's just kind of start with, with Andre, give us a little background on, you know, you coming up where you, where you grew up and then kind of what led you into this situation. Okay. So I grew up in the Bronx, um, young kid coming out of Bronx, hard times, of course, starting to a little street trafficking, you know, during the course of that, I was injured. I, um, which led to my traumatic and drastic departure because I was shot in my leg. And um, in the early, I should say the late 90s, 1999, I was accused of a crime that I didn't commit. And I was wrongfully convicted of that crime. Now you say the Bronx, Jeffrey, you're not far from it. What is it with this New York? It seems like a lot of this goes on in New York. I mean, you got the Central Park Five, your case, Andre's case. What the hell's going on up there in New York? Well, what happened uh, back then was that there was really it was a crazy time in the five boroughs because of crack. It had kind of taken over the city and you had just had a lot of crime, a lot of violent crime, Um, several murders a day, carjacking, robberies, all fueled by the drug itself, which made people whack and the money which was very lucrative. And then that just generally created, you know, a lot of chaos in the city. And, and what happened was right or wrong, people got tired of it. They were worried about losing the city and it just became lock everybody up and we'll figure it out later. You know, mm-hmm. judges, juries, DAs, cops were corrupt. There was just, this urge to just get everybody off the street, no matter what. And they just started warehousing people right and left. And that that's why you're seeing so many of these wrongful conviction cases from that time period, which I would say is mid nineties to um, early two thousands. Yeah, definitely. Like I'd say crack epidemic had, like you said, had a lot to do with it in that time frame. a lot of crime, and whenever there's crime and, and that kind of money to be made, corruption is usually right alongside of it lots of times and not, not to knock law enforcement. I don't want to say that they're all bad, but a lot of times they can get just as corrupted, you know, even though behind, behind the badge as, as guys on the street. Yeah. And also I just want to quickly add, you know, that in the course of trying to retake the streets and reestablish law and order and, and safety, they, engaged in, in met, you know, methods that wound up sw- sweeping some innocent people up in, in the course of doing that. Yeah. And that's, that's really unfortunate because I think sometimes cops and, and law enforcement looked at it as, you know, well, the ends justify the means, but you can't say that when lives are at stake, when guys are put in prison for long sentences for things they didn't do. And it's really one of these things that unless somebody has been directly affected or unless they know somebody that has been directly affected, they don't really understand how deep that hurt goes. And they don't really, a lot of people just don't even think it's possible. They don't believe that this is something that happens on a regular basis. And it's so, 
So not true. It happens way more than people realize. And lots of times it's not publicized, which is why I'm glad that Jeffrey, you shared your story on the show. And now Andre, you're doing the same. Um, so we'll get into like what exactly happened with you, you know, the night in question, how did this all come about? So first, let me thank you for having me on because it's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. You know, in hearing the end of Jeffrey's story and you just allowing me to present my story with Oscar and Jeff is amazing. So with my story, um, it's like so many black and brown men who are wrongfully convicted or just trampled over in the criminal justice system. And what happened with me was, you know, at the time of this crime itself, I had fully, you know, regressed from the streets itself. I was a college student going to the borough of Manhattan Community College. After my near-death experience, you know, I said, this is over for me. You know, this part of my life and career is completely over with. And at that time, you know, my life was altered and changed completely when two um, complaining witnesses came forward, one, I should say, came forward along with an eyewitness and incriminated me in this crime. At the time this crime happened, two boys was allegedly shot, one paralyzed from the waist down, the other one hit numerous times. And, you know, I was, because of my prior history in the streets, incriminated in this crime itself and culpated. So, you know, at that time, I had nothing to do with the crime itself. I was told when these officers came to my home and residence where I was living with my girlfriend that they wanted to speak to me. I wasn't home at the time. And um, that was on that the next day, which the crime itself happened on the Friday night evening time. And then they came on that Saturday morning looking for me. When I understood that they were looking for me. I immediately um, contacted my mother and she reached out to an attorney friend of ours. And that attorney friend immediately called the precinct in a questioning state to find out what is going on. And he was told, you know, there's no worries here. Um, you know, we just want to question Audrey. So he was told by them when he gave them no information, you know, we don't want Andre for anything other than, you know, we just want to speak to him. So he said, listen, you will not speak to Andre. You can tell me anything you want to tell me about this crime and if Andre has any involvement in it. So at that point, they shut all communication down and they said, listen, you know, if we need Andre, we will contact you at a later date. And within a 24 hour period, you know, they did contact him and tell him that they would like for me to come down to the precinct for questioning, which we went down 48 hours after their initial um, conversation on the phone. And when that um, when I went to the precinct with um, the attorney himself, what occurred at that time was I was outside of the swinging doors, just sitting, waiting to hear what was going on. And they went in there for about a 15 minute, 20 minute period. After their discussion, he came out and said, Andre, they're keeping you. And 20 years, three years later, you know, I'm here speaking to you. Holy cow. So you weren't in that meeting? No. Now, did you know these individuals that got shot? Did you know them at all? No, I didn't know. Not one of them. 
Um, these individuals were in a drug trade uh, of marijuana. They had an entire crew, unbeknownst to me. All of this information was elicited through great investigative work by Oscar and his entire team, including when Jeff came on board. This knowledge was um, made known and conveyed also by the district attorney's office. Okay. So what happened there, Wade, is that that in the initial trial, they never really had a motive, which was their one of their weaknesses was why would Andre just shoot up these guys? Right. The two kids claimed they were just hanging out at the corner drugs at the corner candy shop. They had one had stayed home from school, the other one went over, they played some video games, and then they went to the corner to get a soda and a snack. And then a masked gunman came and gunned them down. And they created this story that, oh, well, two days earlier, Andre and them had exchanged words that he had pointed his gun, a finger at him. Again, no reason why they, he would do that, but that that's what happened. And that was all that they that they had. A masked gunman. Uh, and, and so, yeah, so it was that was a big like gaping hole. But you don't have to prove motive in a, in a, in a criminal case, of course. But so... You know, we found out that there was a huge uh, drug war over turf between um, this one crew, Jamaican crew, and an American crew over weed. Now, Andre never sold weed. Andre sold crack. Right. So, and cocaine. He didn't care about weed. Matter of fact, he bought on occasion. I was, was about to say, a, you would probably figure more of a turf war going on from what Andre was involved in as opposed to weed. Weed's like, I, I you would know. think. Yeah. <laughs> but there was a lot of money to be made back then. And this is kind of why I got involved in the case because uh, I grew up in the same neighborhood. Andre and I went to the same high school. And I had another case on a different part of the, the Bronx, but not that far, which involved an African-American gang versus a Jamaican gang. And so I said, hey, wait a second. Maybe this is that same turf situation. Um, And that was more of a crack uh, case. But there was this problem that the the blacks who had lived in that neighborhood saw Jamaican gangs coming in. It was a lot more than just about weed. It was about Turf. Turf. Right? Yeah. Who owned what corner? And so um, we found that motive. And then we f- we found some other information leading to who the real killer was, but the real shooter was. But when we filed the motion um, for the first time, the Bronx DA agreed and said, yes, you know what? There was this big uh, drug turf war over that corner. And these two guys were marijuana sellers. And our response was like, well, that's evidence our jury never heard of uh, right. either. That alone is new, you right. know. So that that's what that's what happened there. The, second, the last thing I want to say before we turn it over to somebody else also is that the shooter in this case was a lunatic a guy. Named, nickname was Bonkers, and he was the spitting image of Andre. And by that, I don't just mean their height and weight, which was identical but their facial features as well. We got, we were able to find his yearbook, uh, the real shooter's yearbook and put it up against the picture from Andre at the same time. And they, they could have been twins separated at birth. Wow. So, you know, we do feel that 
the initial woman who identified Andre probably genuinely believed that she saw Andre. She had a real fleeting look. She knew Andre from the neighborhood. And these two guys at night with a mask on, you could definitely mistake the the real shooter for Andre. What happened was the other victim, which was the only other person to identify Andre, when he was first interviewed by the police, he could not. He said, I couldn't identify anybody. And then it was only later after Andre had been identified by the girl that he said it was Andre. So that's how that no one immediately identified Andre. It was not until two days later that first this eyewitness came forward when she heard that there was a rumor in the street that Andre had been the shooter. And she said, yeah, you know, kind of looked like Andre. And then after that, one of the victims came forward and said, um, I think it was Andre. So and so so what I want to build off of uh, what Oscar mentioned, you know, is that, you know, the, the woman is referring to, you know, uh, she got the street wrong. You know, where she said the crime happened as that, and then she claims that she was at a red light, but actually there there is no traffic light there. There's a, there's a stop sign, but there's no you know, and it's just for a fleeting couple of seconds. And uh, one of the victims who Oscar referenced, you know, he he claims that as he's falling down, he's hit, he's falling down, you know, his spine is severed, and he's able to like turn quickly and get a, get a glimpse, which really doesn't work from a physical. Uh, point of view. So that was the case. It's that flimsy identifications. Um, and another key point is that, you know, from Andre's street life, you know, which he retired from, uh, he got shot in a totally unrelated incident. And so, you know, the leg damage that he had, he would not have been able to descend the subway, run a bunch of blocks faster than, you know, his victims shoot, turn the corner, and then run a bunch more. He would not have been able to to do that. But his his lawyer at the time uh, never presented that medical evidence. His first lawyer mentioned notified the court that he would be uh, introducing that that evidence. But then his, his schedule, he was busy with other cases. So Andre brought a different attorney in, and this other attorney never never followed up. It's the only lawyer, as far as we know, that ever um, entered the witness protection program because he was in-house counsel for the Bonanno crime family. So this medical evidence was never, you know, where he could not have physically committed the crime was never in front of the jury. So, you know, we, we got the, the actual doctor who did the surgery, uh, the alternative suspect, the two people who um, affirmed that it was him who committed the crime. And then that was all corroborated by, by the uh by by bullets that there was you know that there had been repeated violence with three incidents uh involving involving them so that all of that is what constitutes Andre's actual innocence claim and his newly discovered evidence claim and if ever there was a case to rule actual innocence on in a non-dna scenario it would certainly be uh this case a- absolutely um well there's a lot to unpack here so I want to ask you one question the the lawyer that you're talking about, um, the one that didn't disclose Thomas Lee, yeah, Thomas Lee. That's the one that didn't disclose his injury that entered into witness protection. Yeah, he's that's the one who didn't present the evidence. Wow. So he was. You said he was with the Bonanno crime family. Yeah. What we discovered was that at the same time as Andre's trial was going on, he was a fully made member of the Bonanno crime family, and he was their attorney. And as as a matter of fact, 
um, he was arrested for what he would do was he would go to visit the Dons and the Capos who were in jail and they couldn't be visited by their crew members because they would be listened to, but he would go and no one would listen. Yeah, you can't. He would translate the orders back to the crime family members, including in, in two cases, who to hit, who to promote. One major evident thing was who to give the, the garbage contract to in, in Staten Island. So he's translating all of this information back and forth. So when he got arrested under Rico with the rest of the crime family, he turned state's evidence. And he became... He became the first lawyer ever admitted into the witness protection program. And um, he's listed as one of the top 10 most important mafia informants of all time. Wow. And so he kind of had his hands full at the time that he was trying Andre's case. And, you know, um, he did not present the medical evidence at all, which is crazy because when the judge trying the case heard the first lawyer explain what the defense was going to be on the record, she goes, wow, that's a, that's pretty compelling. And then it disappeared. Never came in. Wow. Yeah. I've never, I've never heard of that. And we cover a lot with the mob, um, you know, on this show, a lot of guys from there, was that like a big, huge takedown that he was involved in? He took down one of the original five families. The wow. Bonanno crime family is one of the original yeah. five oh, yeah. crime yeah. families. Wow. And he's he's credited with taking them down. I mean, it 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 was a major thing. And it was so major, and his work was so good that now they let him come back and be a lawyer again. They reinst- they let him be reinstated. He's currently uh, I don't even know how this brother pulled this off, but he's alive and well and 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 a lawyer. He uh so that's how valuable he was that the government even 20 years later though he participated in, in in all of this illegality has let him come back and get his law license back wow that's crazy yeah he was this he was suspended for 23 years but he's back wow so yeah i mean andre uh definitely it's not to knock your your needing of proper counsel but if he had all that going on he probably wasn't too concerned with not only your case, but any cases that he probably had on his, his workload. He was probably trying to stay alive and not catch a bullet. Um, so originally what were your charges? So my charges were always attempted murder, two attempted murders two attempt, okay. of the two individuals. Yes. And for that, he had a 40 year sentence, by the way, you know, they, yes. they instead of normally in, you know, it would have been, you know, the 20 years and 20 years would have been uh, concurrent. Concurrent, yeah. But they decided, uh, as Andre might say, they decided to run it wild, uh, which meant consecutive. So Andre was actually doing far more time than if he had just straight up killed somebody. You, you know, get like a 15, 20, 25 to life sentence. Right. Yeah. Now, what what age were you? I don't know if you said it, but uh, what age were you when this happened? I was 21, just turning in 22. Okay, so they're banking on you being every bit of knocking on the door 60 whenever you get out of here if you make it out. Yeah. Not only that, but um, how they always looked at it was, and how I always, you know, now I laugh at it with Jeff and Oscar. I had just finished 20 years, 
and I was just three years into a new 20-year sentence. So it was almost as if I was just starting all over again from the beginning. Right. Yeah. And that's a long time to think you got to start over and do it again. Um, yes. What it, What was your thoughts going in? Because obviously you you knew you didn't do this. You You didn't even have any idea who these guys were. Going in after these charges, did you think you would wind up in prison? Because that's what... When I talk to a lot of these guys, guys like Jeff and myself, because I don't know if you know my story too, but I was in similar situations. I thankfully I didn't have to endure quite a long time as as you know you guys did. But you don't ever think that you're going to go to jail for something that you didn't really do, right? Did, um, was, was that in your mindset? Did you have faith that you know things would work itself out, or were you really worried? Well, initially, I had no worries. Right. I mean, I walked into the precinct. I, I, you know, followed all the rules, as they would say. Yes. So, you know, they left their card. I contacted them with the attorney. You know, there was no running for me in this case because I knew I did nothing at all. So in that aspect, when I became worried was when they put the handcuffs on me. Because, first of all, I'm with you know, an officer of the court. I'm walking into the precinct with somebody who you should respect. Mm-hmm. You don't have to respect me, of course, but you have to respect this attorney. So when they put the handcuffs on me, of course, at that point, I started to get worried. Yeah. Um, how long before you went to trial? I want to say at least about almost a year. Almost a year. So... Yeah. You went to trial, obviously, I'm assuming at that point, once the trial was done due to a lot of what we've kind of went over with your ineffective counsel, which that, that running thing, man, your inability to run should have been a key factor and really probably should have been the nail in the coffin. in, in my opinion, because these people that, that named you and fingered you doing these things probably had no idea that you had that, you know, injury. No, no one knew that I had the injury. Yeah. Um, only the attorneys that I kept indicating it to telling them I could not run to commit this crime. As and- a matter of fact, one one of the things I would have liked to have done was gone back to the woman who, as I told you, I think made an innocent mistake. In other words, the one victim just went along for the ride and he could care less. He wanted right. to frame Andre, you know. Right. But the woman, I I I would have always wanted to go back to her and say, Did you know? that you saw this guy run past you, it was a foot chase. You know, would it have been impossible, in your opinion, for someone with a leg injury to have done that? She would have said, you know, yes, I, you know, I didn't know, but, you know, it would have affected her mindset, I believe, at the time of the trial. I think she might have come around and said, you know, gee, I, I if I had known that, no. or Or show her a picture of the real killer. Real shooter and say, listen, in that fleeting moment, in your car, at night, scared, less than a second that a car, a person runs past your window. That's the only opportunity that she had to see this person. Could it have been this person? And I wouldn't be surprised if she had said yes. But listen to what happened. This was the nail in, in, in Andre's coffin. She was getting ready to come and testify. Andre's mother and his then-girlfriend see her in the laundromat. And they say to her, hey, Stephanie, you know, we understand you're the witness. 
you got it wrong. You know, Andre could not have done this. Please don't, you know, come and say he did because he didn't do this, you know. She reports it to the DA. The DA reports it to the judge. Witness tampering. The judge says, I don't, the judge says, look, it's his mother. What else is she going to say? Yeah. And, and their friends. And her friends. You know, it's like, this is not. Also, that lady and your mom knew each other. Yes, they were friends. From the neighborhood. Oh, just okay. again, From the like, neighborhood, right. From not the friends, just like the neighborhood. No, neighborhood, you know? right. Yeah, okay. So, uh, which, by the way, our eyewitness expert says that's what happens. You think you recognize somebody. Right. Yeah, you, you but, place who you know on that an individual. Exactly. Right. So the, ju- the judge says, no, she's got to come in and she's got to testify. That's not witness tampering. So now, the day before she comes in, she's, the day she's supposed to come in, she comes to court and there's a an envelope with a bullet in it. And it says, uh, this is what happens to rats, you fat bitch. Right. And she says, I got I'm not coming in. I'm not testifying. Look, I got this, I got this in my windshield. I found this in my windshield this morning. So the judge at that point said, the only person who would have known that she was supposed to testify that morning was Mr. Brown. So it must have been Mr. Brown or someone connected to Mr. Brown who tried to intimidate this witness. Yes. Now, what we argued, the judge did not agree. What we argued is, had Judge Bamberger known that the attorney was a made member of the Bonanno crime family, um, Maybe, and he knew who was coming in that next court date. She might have said, oh, wait a second now, Mr. Lee, did you, you're like, and not connected to Andre. Mm-hmm. She would never have believed that a, a lawyer would engage in that. And neither would I, and neither would you. But right. had you known that he had just passed the hit message for the Bonanno crime family, well, this sounds like a thing a mob lawyer would do. Right, exactly. And I had never heard of that until you told that to me. And I've known quite a few, not known personally, but known of instances where guys do represent a lot of mobsters, but never wanted to be a fully made man. So that that package could have very well been a message to the lawyer and had not have anything to do with the witness for Andre. From, yeah. And so what happened then is the witness didn't testify and they were able to read her grand jury testimony, which has no cross-examination. It was literally five questions and five answers. And it makes you sound so certain. Were you able to see the person's face? Yes. Who was the person? Andre Brown. How do you know him? I seen him from the neighborhood walking his dogs. Are you sure it was Mr. Brown? Yes. Any questions? No. So there's no cross-examination. But wait, you were sitting in your car. Yeah. It was dark. You heard gunshots. One person runs past you, so you look, and then you look back, and another person runs past you with a gun. You see the gun. That was your opportunity. How could you be certain that you saw him? You know, so this jury heard from a witness who, in the cold transcript, sounds like a dead-on bad witness for Andre. Knows him. As this is what the DA said in summation. Knows him. Had the opportunity identified him in a lineup and testified before the grand jury that she was certain it was him that, you know, 
Well, and that's something that the general public doesn't really, I think, grasp of how grand jury testimonies are done. Like you said, there is no cross-examination. It's just them. All you hear is them. So you hear those statements on paper, and it, it doesn't sound good, you know, for Mr. Brown. It, it doesn't. But if you were just able to ask the questions you just asked me, then every member on that grand jury is like, it's... That's why, I mean, it's that old saying, you know, they'll indict a ham sandwich because it's very easy when you're only hearing one side of the story. Exactly. Without cross-examination. Yeah. So, Andre, at this point, you know, you're found guilty. Um, They're giving you your sentence. Where did they send you to originally? So they originally sent me to um, Elmira. I went straight um, upstate to, to the reception center. There's two reception centers. One is downstate reception center and the other one is Elmira. Mm -hmm. So they sent me way up north, away from everyone, (laughs) which was absolutely insane. Mm -hmm. You know, while everybody else was close to the city and downstate, I was way in Elmira, New York. So, you know, my journey began, you know, with a wrongful conviction, with a wrongful arrest. And now I'm way away from everybody, starting off in Western New York. Obviously, you know, going into that situation, you, you've got to be crushed mentally, but did you have, uh, I guess a burning desire in you to fight this and not, not give up? Obviously you, you did, but what was it like initially? I mean, from my initial arrest all the way to trial and conviction, the faith that I always had in God first allowed me to trod the waters right you know i've always held the concept that i'm still on trial even when i was you know knee deep and mud all the way up to my neck and i was all the way under the mud now with only a straw and quicksand i still held on to that reality i am on trial i'm not taking this time This is their time. I'm giving it back to them. I did nothing wrong here. Mm -hmm. So this is what kept my mental hygiene clear. You know, this is what kept me fighting. You know, um, thinking of my grandmother, who's 97 years old today, um, thinking of my mom who passed away while I was inside, you know, wanting to see her gravesite, you know, wanting to be free and enabling myself with a passion and a desire to continue on. You know, and I was able to come out unscathed with many, you know, violent attempts on me. So, you know, those are the things that kept me focused. And but God first, of course. What what level prison was uh, Elmira? A max. I've never went to a medium. Never. I've always been in all maxes. So straight max. And, and, And in accordance with Elmira, that's like one of the more terrible maxes. Attica, Elmira, Clinton, Comstock. You know, Cat Sacky, Five Points. I could name all of these Sing Sing. These are the more terrible ones where a lot of violence is continuously. Uh, how about. Yeah, Elmira's the Junior Gladiator School, by the way, just as an FYI. Yeah. yeah. Um, what do you mean by that, Jeff? You want to explain that? There's a whole lot of young prisoners, and there's a lot of violence and a ridiculously extreme amount of violence, even for a prison setting. You know, shanks and razors and, you know, you, you're, you're either going to 
you know, sharpen your skills and, and learn to survive and, you know, or you're just going to fall by the wayside rather quickly as a, as, as a victim. So it kind of hardens people up and you sink or swim immediately. Yeah. How about you, Andre? Was there any sort of brushes that you got into in there with, with violence or altercations? That's, that's almost probably a given. You're going to run into something at some point. Of course. I mean, I had to fight at times, you know, I fought hard, you know, I, I I haven't, thank God I haven't lost, but, you know, I was jumped in there. You know, I did um, almost upon coming out, you know, the last result was an individual tried to stab me in my eye. I was on the phone, you know, trying to get a, uh, the ending of my call because you get 30 minute phone calls and the individual became fed up because I told him, listen, man, I'm, I'm finishing off my call. And he pulled out a pen and tried to stab me in my eye, you know. And these violent attempts were always um, valid and always a reality to me. But I started to transcend away from that, you know, from the very beginning. I've always tried to gravitate towards the more intellectual me, which is books, learning, educating myself, becoming a peer counselor for HIV awareness and more vocational skills and training my thoughts I was a paralegal um, for over 14 years in the law library. So I honed my skills and crafted myself to my reality. And my reality was becoming a free man. And I knew if I um, sustained or alluded to the gang violence itself, I would have went by the wayside. I'd be dead today. Right. So were you more or less, you just kind of stuck to yourself and, and buried your head in, you know, the literature and, you know, the litigations and, and kind of working on your own case. Is that how you were able to kind of come out of that? I mean, that's a nutshell of it. When okay. you say stick to myself, you know, I mind my business. In right. prison, you learn to mind your business. Yeah. And that's what you mean by standing by yourself. Of course, I had colleagues, you know, some I worked out with, some I studied the law with. I had a team of individuals who were innocent and we all... Um, examined each other's cases. We brought things to the table. We would always give each other new case laws to continuously strengthen us, even though everybody's facts was different. You know, we were all looking for the same key of hope to be exonerated men one day. And, and that's interesting you bring that up because, yeah, when I say that, a lot of people, maybe from different lifestyles or different upbringings, when they go into prison, they immediately, I guess the term would be click up. So if they right. go in there and they're, you know, a motorcycle member, they're going to hook up with other guys. If they're Aryan Brotherhood, they're going to hook up with other AB members. If they're, you know, Jamaican gang, they're going to, they're going to go to who they know. And you just said that. And I want to make sure that there are people realize that there's a group of people in there. I wouldn't necessarily classify them as a gang, but there's a group of people in there that are all innocent, that that's what y'all have in common to work on trying to get out of prison. And that's a shame. That is a of course. shame. Of course. I mean, the strong stay with the strong and the weak right. stay with the weak. And I've always looked at if you're joining a gang, you're weak because you can't fend for yourself. Right. You know, I was neutral my entire 23 years on the inside. You know, of course, I went through some difficult times, but I came out unscathed, mm -hmm. you know, by the hand of God. And, you know, the emissaries that you see before you, Oscar and and Jeff, and, you know, I can't never forget Sabine, who should have been here with us, you know, speaking. But um, it was just uh, a mindset of 
staying focused, staying the the path and not allowing, you know, the things that you see and gravitate towards those things. You know, I had a saying on the inside and I'll give you the illustration of it. I was the donkey and individuals used to always come and throw dirt on me because I used to say I was innocent and I would shake it off. And eventually so much dirt would be shaken off that I rose above them. And that dirt, when they, when I was at the top of the pile of the dirt, I was now looking down at them because I now had the knowledge. I now had the more intellectual prowess in studying and crafting and honing my skills in the law library and also moving forward to my ultimate goal of freedom. Whereas these individuals who always was in the mess of dirt, you know, they was always in the box. You know, I had a little time in the box, of course, but, you know, these guys spent years, 10, five years in the box because they wanted to join the violence. They wanted to be amongst, they thought was the elite where I knew the elite was in prominent society. So, you know, in that aspect, just the richness itself of just having one individual that you could trust because in prison, trust comes in increments. Right. You cannot trust anybody, not with their case, you know, because somebody will go to the district attorney and say that you told them something, mm -hmm. which you didn't. Um, you can't trust somebody with a family member coming up on a visit because you know they're lusting or something like that. You can't trust anybody with anything on the inside. You know, they're always looking for a way to get over. Yeah. And in that aspect, you know, the individuals who I grew the best trust with, I knew that they were worthy because they were had the same goal and ideologies of myself, which was strengthening family ties, strengthening their mindset, staying the path and ultimately gaining their freedom. And, you know, everybody, Wade, they always say, oh, everybody in prison says that they're they're innocent. You know, that's not the case. Right. And the guys who are really working on their case, spending time in the law library instead of doing you know, more fun things like working out in the yard yeah. or just hanging out, you get to know when someone is genuine about their innocence. And right. that that forms a bond as, as well because you could tell right away, like, oh, this guy, he's just trying to game the system. And, you know, hey, you know, good luck to you, but that's not what we're about. You yeah. know, we're really right. you know, working on innocence. And one of the reasons why I did take – uh, Andre's case, not well, just because it was that was going to be my next question is how did you get involved with his case? Well, yeah. So first of all, his wife, Tamika contacted me. Um, and that's one thing we always require. Like if you don't have anyone on the outside who believes you, I am not going to believe you. <laughs> if your mama, everybody else has given up on you, you might be guilty, you know, yeah. but you know, she was very forceful in explaining his case to me that she believed in him. Obviously when I went up to meet him, I could tell he was a genuine real person. But one of the other things was the guy that I did get out, a guy named Cal Buari, was at Greenhaven with Andre. And then he chimed in. He said to me, listen, that guy, that guy is innocent. You got to you got to take that case. So that was a big those were the three main reasons that got me in, involved in Andre's case. At what point in time in his incarceration, how many years in before you got involved? We got involved. Um, well, what it was, how many years ago, Andre now five, 
It would probably would have been year 17, right? I mean, it 2016, was 17, yeah. 2016, 2016, 2016, come into the end of 16, coming into the early 17. Yeah. So did you have- he was convicted? He was arrested uh, in 99, convicted in 2000. And so we were 16, 17 years into his in- incarceration. Um, and um, that's the other thing, you know, when we talk about these wrongful convictions, it's these kind of long cases that get the look. Yeah. You can't even count how many people cop to five years, you know, for a robbery they didn't do. Uh, yeah. Ten years for a drug sale that they were not involved in. And they're out and no one's looking at those cases. Yeah. And you know, that's that's how they do it, man. That When you're caught up and you don't have the money for an attorney and you're looking at a possible 15, someone is going to cop to whatever five. they're being accused of and do five maybe get out in, you know, three and a half, four, depending on, you know, the situations it, it, it's like that so much and people just do not realize that. Um, there's so no many people look that at it. for that. And no one's going to bother to look back at a case you did five years on. Right. Exactly. And, and that's it. You're out. It's five years. You're done. You're not going to bother. And that's all the district attorney cares about. You know, and, and Jeffrey, I'm sure you can, can chime in. You know, that's exactly, you probably had a lot of experience with that same thing. Yeah, for, for sure. So for people, if you haven't heard the original episode, I mean, I, as you mentioned, I mean, I did do 16 years myself before uh, DNA exonerated. I used some of the compensation. I started Jeffrey Deskalik Foundation for Justice, which is my background. And at some point, uh, and we've gotten like 13 people home, but at some point I was not satisfied with sitting in the front row or the courtroom. You know, I wanted to be sit at the defense table, represent some of the clients, make some of the arguments, do some of the legal work. So hence, I went to law school. And so Oscar and I had a pre-existing relationship prior to my going to law school. I mean, I would do a lot of speaking events. He'd show up at them and we would move in some of the same circles. So we have a natural affinity. People in the innocence movement have a natural camaraderie and affinity for others in the movement. Uh, So our relationship started there. And then in law school, Oscar became kind of like a, he's an adjunct professor also. And so he kind of tutored me in some subjects while I was in, you know, law school other than his. And so shortly after I got the license and Oscar knew I had the license, he calls me up all excitedly two days after that. He says, uh, are you ready for your first case? I'm like, yeah, of course. This is this is what I uh, this is what I went through all of that for. And, uh, you know, and he was able to relate to me in like three and a half to four minutes what the basis of his belief in Andre's case, the potential route to victory, the new evidence we talked about. And uh, I was definitely on board at uh, at, at that point. That's that's great. Um, Andre, so after, like you said, 17 years in, you get Oscar to jump on this for you. That had to feel like, all right, here's. <laughs> I see a little bit of a light. Let me start working towards that light. I mean, listen, when I first contacted Oster, it, it should be known that I have been protesting like hell to the court itself during sentencing. Right. You know, I told the judge tooth and nails, listen, you have an innocent man standing before you. You know, you're taking away my college career. You're taking me away from my family. You're taking me away from life itself. And she basically, with a cold, skull-faced death, said, we understand, but there is an appeal process. And 
moved forward in sentencing me to 40 years. In meeting Oscar, you know, the first thing I told Oscar, because it had been a small hiatus, um, Tamika had contacted Oscar and she was elated. I was elated. But then there was a small hiatus and I didn't hear from Oscar for about a week or two. So at that time, you know, I became a little concerned because, you know, as an individual who's writing numerous letters, you know, you're getting no answer at all at times or a simple return of your original letter with a small ink at the bottom saying we cannot take this case or a small draft with a one line sentence saying, you know, I'm sorry, we can't take this case. So at that time, I reached out to Oscar and I said to Oscar, I said, listen, man, and I should say Oscar first said, Andre, do you think that I didn't want to take your case? I said, Oscar, it wasn't about you not wanting to take the case. It was more so about the hope that I'm giving to my wife, Tamika. You know, I didn't want to give her hope again in thinking there was a pathway to my freedom. Right. And those are the things that starve relationships because here it is. I, I have a woman by my side who, you know, she's taking care of our children. And now there's a flame in her. Like Andre's coming home. I can, you know, bring him across this bridge with this lantern. Oscar being the lantern, of course. But now Tamika says, you know, the lantern itself is extinguished. So Oscar said to me, he said, Andre, I want to take your case and I'm coming up to see you. And at that time, he scheduled right on the phone with me um, to come see me in Green Haven, which is another gladiator school in and of itself, which Calvin Buari left from. And, you know, I ended up getting transferred from when Oscar actually got Calvin Buari out of prison. And when Oscar came to the prison itself, the prison itself was in an uproar because Oscar had just got Calvin out and everybody knew about Oscar's legend, except for me, because Rafael Martinez and Calvin Biori had told me about Oscar. And I'm like, Oscar, who's Oscar? They're like, you haven't heard of Oscar? I said, listen, I know all the top attorneys. I'm telling them I know all the, they said, well, you don't know Oscar, you know? And I started researching who Oscar was. And I started to come to an understanding that Oscar was a champion fighter, freedom fighter for men who were wrongfully convicted. And at that time, I became excited because that night I went to the law library before he was coming to see me because he had scheduled his visit about a week out. Right. And um, I started researching Oscar himself and in understanding, you know, his legend itself in fighting for Hurricane Carter and all of these different individuals that he was involved in their cases. I mean, it turned on such a light within me in those opaque times because I thought that, you know, life itself was over. Mm -hmm. And then the prison, like I said, the minute Oscar landed in the prison was in a total uproar because when you're in a prison and you're innocent and you want to stay safe, you don't tell anybody an individual like Oscar Michelin is coming to see you. Mm -hmm. So everybody had been saying, Who's Oscar coming to see? Who's Oscar coming to see? You know, and there was only one other individual who knew that, and that was Rafael Martinez. And 
Oscar, I told Raphael that Oscar, I would be seeing Oscar in the morning. And, you know, when Oscar came that morning, I mean, when everybody knew it was me going to see him, everything turned, man. Like, you know, Oscar, listen, please help me. Like, everybody is looking for that beacon of light, you know. And I say that to say that we need more Oscar Michelins. We need more Jeffrey Deskovich Foundations. We need more of these prominent attorneys. And I hope one or 10 are listening right now to your podcast to say, we hear you, Andre, because you guys need to reach out to the inside. There are men on the inside who are looking and breathing their last breaths in the aspect of hoping for their freedom. There are women on the outside, you know, with their fingers freezing, waiting on lines for their husbands and brothers and uncles and other aunts. We won't forget the female prisoners, you know, who are also incarcerated, who are looking for that beacon of light or that emissary like an Oscar Mitchell or a Jeffrey Deskovic. Yeah. So for me to receive that gift, I know that it came from God itself because when Oscar had taken my case, his entire workload itself had been completed. And he indicated that to my wife, Tamika, because, you know, his firm itself, they take on a certain amount of cases every year. Mm -hmm. And he had already made his load for the year. And Tamika asked him, Oscar, is there something in any way you can give to Andre just so that you can examine something? I understand your position. And Oscar, the generous man that he is, he said, Tamika, give Andre this questionnaire. And it was a questionnaire of five questions itself. And when I received that questionnaire, I filled it out like lightning speed, trying to get this back to him immediately. And when he received it at that time, there was one thing that I left out and it was my leg injury itself. Tamika immediately sent him another email. And he said, he told Tamika that night, Tamika, Andre's case has just went from the bottom of the list to the very top. Wow. And he sent Tamika over two more questions, which it took me about uh, a little over three days because it's a process in getting to the law library. And, you know, I filled out those two questions and was able to actually have Oscar Michelin today. Wow. And Oscar, you work with Hurricane Carter? Yeah, it's one of the blessings of my life. Um, talk about a legend, yeah. you know, people, unfortunately, a lot of folks, you know, his name has kind of gone by the wayside, but it's unfortunate because he's really the godfather of the wrongful conviction movement. And I had, I had gotten a guy out my first exoneration and in 2006, and it was, um, a big deal back then. I, they're always a big deal, but back then, like that was, people were not walking out of prison as innocent. Man, I, mean, I was on the Today Show, for example, which is huge. You know, Good Morning America. It was national news. And then um, a couple of days later, I get a call. My secretary says, uh, a guy named Hurricane Carter's on the phone. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, which one of my idiot most of my balls? You know, I literally I pick up the phone and I go, all right, which asshole is this? And he goes, excuse me? <laughs> I go, uh, 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 hello? He goes, yes, is this Oscar Michelin? And I'm like, uh, yes, who is this? He goes, this is Dr. Hurricane Carter. I'm like, come on. And he goes, 
I'm serious. I go, I'm sorry, doctor. I thought you were one of my friends. So we became well, became a lifelong friendship from there. We worked on, we got two exonerations that he, he and I worked on. Wow. Um, and he, um, I got to tell you, I don't know that I've ever met anyone anyone quite quite like him because he just never gives up. He is tenacious. You know, he did 10 years in solitary because he refused to wear a prison uniform because he's like, I'm not an inmate. They're like, you got to wear the uniform. He's like, I'm not, I'm, I'm innocent. I don't belong here. Lost his eye in prison. You know, it was just, just really, finally a, a, a correction officer, you know, spoke to him and said, you're not helping yourself, man. You, you can't fight your case from the hole. And that was what convinced him to come back. And he said, we were not going to give you a uniform. We're going to give you a jeans and a jeans shirt. Would you wear that? He goes, yes, I'll wear that. And um, that's how he fought, you know, his, his case. And he was just such a tenacious, tenacious person and um, brilliant, dedicated, but just a, a real genuine human being, you know? Um, And it was, unfortunately, you know, we lost him to cancer um, in 2014, but um, I would have to say it's one of the blessings of my life to have, to have gotten to meet him and work and work with him. He's just a genuine, he's the genuine article, man. Yeah. That could be a a whole episode by himself. Just everything that, uh, you know, that guy had going on. Um, Jeffrey, when you first heard about Andre's case, how did it strike you? Because I think that's like you, you, y'all mentioned earlier, a lot of people in prison are trying to get out. Unfortunately, even ones that are guilty, will lie because it's just chasing freedom. So you have to be able to weed through the, the ones that are legit and you can tell or are genuine in in their pleas for innocence. When you first took a look at the facts of Andre's case, Jeffrey, what did it, you know, how did it hit you? How did those facts sit with you? His innocence was just so clear. I mean, from, from the medical angle to the alternative suspect, which is a common, uh, pattern in in wrongful conviction case that ended in exoneration. You know the the existence of a alternative suspect, particularly someone that resembles uh, resembles the uh, wrongfully convicted person. Then a couple of uh, witnesses, you know, saying that's the alternative suspect, and then corroborated by the ballistics. I mean, it just was so uh, clear. Right. Just just that by by itself, okay. with you know with the medical as well. Right. Now I'm assuming when you guys got this back. What was it? Or they give you a retrial? Well, I want to just back up just a half a step. So, okay. I mean, you know, when Andre was awarded the evidentiary hearing, you know, which is, you know, which is, in other words, the judge determines that there's enough evidence in the moving papers that, all right, you're going to get a hearing. I want to hear these witnesses live. Okay. I want to hear what they have to say in front of me, you know, bring out whatever you want to bring out. I want to hear them cross-examined by the other side. I'm going to make credibility determinations and I'm going to determine whether this probably would have led to a different outcome. Should I actually reverse this case or not? So so real quick, Jeffrey, evidentiary hearing, that's basically what you just explained. That's not technically a, a new trial. That's, no, that's not that, a new trial. That's hearing the evidence and he will then give his judgment if this is worthy of a retrial. Of a new trial. Okay. All right. Just to, that's what I figured it was, but just to clear it up for some of the audiences that, you know, thankfully may haven't found themselves in situations like this. Right. So he was awarded the evidentiary hearing, but you know, the, the, the COVID was, was, was going on. And uh, the then governor had written an executive order, you know, that authorized the holding of, you know, virtual hearings, 
Right. But, you know, in that order, he he didn't include any language saying that, you know, the, the judge uh, had the authority to order a virtual hearing even over the objection of either party. And so the Bronx DA, uh, uh, Darcel Clark's office, would not agree to having a virtual hearing, not even when they were doing cases virtually uh, other than Andre's. They would not agree to that. And so... Uh, I had put together, I put together like a rally slash press conference you know, with Oscar. We brought a lot of other exonerees, uh, exonerees out, including Aaron McKee, another person that Oscar exonerated and uh, got a bunch of media attention. You know, that was where I drafted some legal documents, which Oscar proofed and then, and then sent in. And uh, we held the press conference trying to persuade the Bronx DA to agree to the virtual hearing, but uh, she would not agree to it. And unfortunately, we lost that collateral ruling on the part of the judge. He found that he did not, in fact, that the order, and he was right, actually. I mean, there they, there was no language in the executive order to authorize him having a virtual hearing over the objection of the prosecution. So that resulted in Andre doing an additional year and a half, just waiting until court would be, you know, back in uh, session in, in, in person. Okay. And so by the way, then, it was yeah. during that it was during that waiting period he got stabbed under the eye, just so that you understand, you know, how much this delay was dangerous. You oh, know, yeah. it was Thanksgiving, right, Andre? I think it was a Thanksgiving phone call. He was on his phone with his wife. And this dude just didn't want to wait the last two minutes. He had two minutes left on his time. And this guy just took a pen out and hit him right underneath the eye. And that was while we were waiting for the hearing. So it, it's, it's crazy how close, you know, things can get like that. And, this, you know? and then when and you think house. about like what, what the basis of the motion was, everything we've laid out already, the medical, the, the, the alternative suspect, the witnesses, the ballistics, you know, it was a strong case. It was a very strong case. So I don't, I, I don't understand how in clear conscience they could have opposed the motion much less than then drag it out much less to <laughs> then fight the hearing. We went to the, you know, evidentiary hearing, all the witnesses came in, and, and and testified and to do that and then you know all the rounds of paperwork of you know the back and forth you know and then waiting for the judge but then the judge you know then the other thing also that led to it is the judge kept the judge had some health problems and you know which he wouldn't tell us what they were but it kept resulting in the case being kicked down the line and this judge was a good judge but we wanted to have decide the case but you know, at, at one point, I mean, it's so much time passed by from so many uh, multiple adjournments based on that. I mean, you know, we constantly debated, uh, agonized, you know, do we want to ask for another judge to just go ahead and do this? Or, you know, do we want to wait? Uh, it, so there was a lot of it, it was it was a very difficult time period. But eventually we had the hearing and then it was another like eight months for this monster 90 plus page decision you know, that was issued, which overturned, you know, Andre's case. And while we're happy that what that happened and, you know, he, he got home, you know, uh, a few weeks before Christmas, while we're ecstatic about that, you know, it is disappointing that we didn't win on the actual innocence and newly discovered evidence. Because this was the case to make that ruling on, you know, with the medical, I mean, anything other than a DNA case, this was the case. And hence us, uh, you know, the DA is appealing the reversal. So they would like to they would like to get the reverse the conviction reinstated, which of course would result in Andre being wrongfully imprisoned again. 
mm-hmm. uh, get that resumed. So they would love to do that. But since they're appealing, you know, we're cross appealing. You know, we don't think they have any shot to get the ineffective assistance of counsel. Because if you're not going to present no. medical evidence to substantiate a medical impossibility, then you might as well do away with that whole area of the law. So yeah, no, I don't think the appeal has any chance, but it's still two more years, man. Right. Right. Exa- exactly. And and we're, we're appealing. We would like to try to win on one of the other uh, two grounds as sure, well. While the appeal is going on, you know, why not? Right. And we, we you listen to it because we think the judge was wrong. You know, um, we thought we have a very clear. And even in his decision. At one point, he goes, look, you know, I might get reversed on this, but it's for the appeals court to do it. Now, he just, basically said it. He said, I might get reversed. You're right. But let the appeals court, let the appeals court do it. And that's what's so hard. Like even with a good judge, even with all this evidence, no one ever wants to just come out and say, admit they, were they wrong. got it wrong. I mean, this case just shows you how hard it is. Just admit it. Just yeah. say it. The man was shot in the leg. His doctor said it would be impossible. And the reason why the judge said that wasn't enough was because, oh, we don't have any rehab records that, you know, Andre could have made a miracle recovery. And it's like, yes, you're right. You're right. He could have made a miracle recovery. But the eyewitnesses never said the man had a limp. Yeah. And this was 11 months after his last surgery. He had so many surgeries, skin grafts and all of this stuff. And, um, you know, it was, but that I really it's a testament to how much the system loves finality. But the judge said, you know what? The lawyering was terrible. I could agree with that. And that's a that's like halfway there. And it gets Andre out. You know, right. sure. No one's, look, right? He spent Christmas with his family. We'll take it. We'll take it. But it really is a testament to just how much the system never wants to admit that they got something wrong. Because if you're not doing it in this case, man, you're never going to do it. I've never, you know, this is not my first one. We've had right, uh, 35 so years far, of right? practice. Jeff has done 10 more others. I've never had a case as strong as Andre's case. Wow. Of right. and, and put in, and put in um, the evidence in the Petri dish, Oscar, you should also allow them to know about the full request that you made finding more evidence about the ballistics reports. And the yeah, we, found, we just kept coming. It just, you know, the another shooting where the guy was arrested. That. The victim was arrested. The ballistics matched the shooting from the January 11th shooting of the victims at the victims to the 15th, which is when Andre was uh, accused of. It, it was just a mountain. A ma- Plus, by the way, a motive. Another shooter. Witnesses who said it was the shooter who did it. The the shooter had a motive because he was a well-known marijuana dealer at that corner. Okay. And then what are the odds that the third party would look like Andre and have the same height and weight? Okay. We're not talking about, oh, within a couple of inches or a couple of pounds. We're talking about the same. Yeah. The same height and weight, the same uh, physical appearance, you know, really frustrating. I get crazy when I think about it, but at the same time, there he is, right? Yeah. Right, Andre? We'll take it. (laughs) And just listening to you guys talk over the last 15 minutes, you know, you knew you have this great case. You know, it's another year and a half for this COVID and another eight months for this. 
you're throwing those numbers out there, but for Andre, that's got to feel like, I mean, a week feels like a month. I'm sure a month feels like a year. It there's time drags. I mean, you got no idea. And then when you're, when you have this glimmer of hope hanging, it's got to be added, you know, more pressure. So Andre, I got to ask you when all this was finally said and done, you got in there, we've covered that. It's not maybe a hundred percent the outcome you wanted, but as Oscar said, you know, you got to come out and, and spend this Christmas with your family. I think we spoke to you right before that. It was, I think it was like a week after you got out when you hopped on the show uh, with Jeffrey. What went through your mind when you found out you were going to be coming out of prison after what, 23 years? I jumped in the air very quietly and pumped my fist. <laughs> you know, I, um, you know, I was told by my wife, Tamika, what was going on through tears itself, because, you know, it was actually tears of joy when I thought it was actually tears of a denial. Um, she told me that um, we have been denied. She started off with the denial of the innocence and the um, newly discovered evidence. And then she alluded to the fact that the judge had actually granted the ineffective assistance counsel. So I was going through strong anxiety. Um, did she do that on I mean, purpose? Or? I can't say whether she did it on purpose <laughs> or not. You know, I've never asked her to this day. I've just continued to hug her and allow her to be her. So you weren't in uh, the courtroom when that happened. You were still oh, in prison. Of course not. Okay. No, it, it's, it's a decision that's issued through email. It's no. not. It's not. It's not. It, it was not a dramatic proclamation. Wow. No. With all parties present in the court. No, I was in prison. Yeah, and you know. I was right on the phone next to a group of individuals. So, you know, when something like this happens, you want to keep it under your hat. Yeah. Because yeah. so there's a lot of people up there that are, are going to be very yeah, jealous. They're yeah. asking me what's going on, you know, and I'm telling them my son had just scored the baskets and yeah. he's doing this in his basketball game. And they're like, oh, OK. You know, and then I go back to speaking quiet as possible because I'm trying to keep it under the hat so that there's no volcano eruption on the inside. Right. You tell them that you found out the Clemson Tigers made the college football playoffs <laughs> or something around those lines. Right. Uh, how long before you got out once you got the, the word? Was it pretty quick? Um, I want to say about a week because the judge had to have a bail application. Um, They fought it. They fought it to the T, scratching Do you all believe the that? They fought it. I, they I continuously can't. fought it, scratching at my back while Oscar continued pushing me through the door. Um, luckily, you know, I had on um, numerous layers that Jeff and Oscar had protected me and prepared me for, you know, the bail hearing itself because I didn't expect for them to be so angry. Mm -hmm. um, they are still angry, very angry, and they have vowed that they will continue this fight. But the greatest feeling is when you have two attorneys who also vow that they will not um, stop until my good name is proclaimed and my innocence is found before a public eye. So with that, we're both fighting, but we're fighting two very different fights. Right. Now, I got to ask you this, because in my situation, I was charged with something very serious. Um, it was it was actually murder. Um Unfortunately, I, or fortunately, excuse me, I did not have to spend a lot of time incarcerated, but it was pending for close to five years. The anxiety that I felt in that five years, I can't even begin to describe to you how it is. It's like going to the doctor to see if you got terminal cancer 
and then them saying, okay, we'll get back with you. And you're never hearing anything every so, day. So any, yeah, every single day. So anytime yeah. a phone rings, anytime you get an email, anytime there's a knock at the door, you don't know if everything's crashing down. You don't know what's going on. You don't have a clue where anything is with that being said, you know, you know, they're, they're trying, as you just alluded to, they would like to put you back in prison. Of course. Are, are you, are you just so glad that you're home? You're just putting that in God's hands or is it still in the back of your mind? Just a little bit that, you know, obviously you've been put in prison before for something you didn't do. So, you know, it's a possibility where are you sitting with that mentally? And that is a very great question. I think you're one of the first individuals who's interviewed us, who's actually asked that question. Well, I was just going to say, it's a very astute interview in yes. general, Wade. You're on top yes, of this. Yes, it's a very great Thank question. You. Well, I mean, like <laughs> I said, I've, I've got a little somewhat, this is where you and I probably would have more experience because I can't put myself in the shoes of you and Jeffrey when it comes to doing that time in prison because fortunately I, I didn't have to go through that. But with this, this worrisome part of it, here's where you and I can kind of get on the same page. Well, you know, I tried to keep that heavy anvil away from my neck. Right. However, in the aspect of it looming in my mind, because I do have a daughter in college, I do have my son who I absolutely love and my wife who I do love. And, you know, I don't ever want them to be hurt. Mm -hmm. So I don't ever want um, them to think ever that I'm going back. When I was first released, you know, and I sent Oscar the video and Jeff the video, um, my son, my wife recorded because I was hiding in a closet and they didn't know I was coming home. They didn't know I was home at all. And um, my daughter came into the house first, but she stayed on the base in the on the base of the house, which is downstairs. And my wife went to pick up my son. And when they came into the house and they saw me and because I had hid in the closet and she said, guys, I brought you something back from New York because they had thought that. She just went to New York. So long story short is she opens up the bedroom door and I jump out at them. And they're shocked and floored. They're jumping. My son is jumping. He's running up and down the stairs. But the question that loomed in my mind, bringing it back to etymology of the conversation, that, and the question I should say you asked me was what my son said to me. He said, he said to his mother, rather, he said, mom, does he have to go back? So... He already had it in his mind. Would this joy that I'm having right now be stripped away from me? And I've been home about four months solid. You know, that's a very long time to be free. I just want you guys to know enjoying four months of freedom is like priceless. Mm -hmm. I just recently got my learner's permit, but it looms very strong in my mind because the reality is I'm still on appeal. Yeah. And we are hoping that somebody will hear this podcast. We are hoping that somebody will hear the other podcast that we did. Somebody would see the interviews that we did with the news media and say, I saw what happened that day and they may want to come in or the very witnesses will actually come forward and tell the truth because the reality is that I am totally innocent of this crime and I want back my good name. I want back my family's name. I want everybody to understand that, you know, Andre Brown 
was not the individual who committed that crime in 1999. Yeah. And, and you want this weight off your head. You want this sword over your head to be removed, you know. So you must have known, and Jeff, too, like when that's finally done and you can really feel that's it. When you can exhale. You can't, you can't exhale. It's never over. It's never over uh, until it's over. Um, so just switching gears for a second, I want to just get into briefly, uh, you know, Andre's first meal. We had a, uh, went to a nice uh, restaurant, which Oscar um, picked. And uh, what'd you have for your first meal there, Andre? Oh my goodness. I want oh man. You know, I still remember like it was yesterday. It was surf and turf. You know, I laughed because I wanted a virgin um, pina colada. They tried to give me one with alcohol. You know, I'm just coming out. I'm trying to stay, you know, as pure as possible. I'm like, I don't want anything. Give me a virgin. But the funniest part of it is when they said, well, how do you want the steak? I just looked at Oscar and said, I don't know. Like, <laughs> how would you how would you know they weren't? Do you mean they weren't they weren't taking your steak order regularly in prison? I mean, you know, the bag lunches that we have is bologna and cheese and bread. And, you know, those are our dinners because they tend to have the dinner at lunchtime so that there's not a flux of traffic during the nighttime where there's more security concerns of escape. So, you know, the horrible bag lunches and from the, um, you know, just the terminally ill food that they yeah. used to give us is the best description for it. You, yeah. I, I mean, I was talking to a guy last night, as a matter of fact, and we were talking about the food that they give you in there. And I was like, I don't even know what some of that stuff was supposed to represent. One of them, one of them in the county jail chip to uh, it was it was called mystery meat, right? A mystery because we, it's not clear what kind of meat it is. What animal does it originate from? Much less the body part. Yeah, <laughs> and it's covered yeah. in gravy, so that invisibility. Oscar, what then- what restaurant did you take him to? <laughs> it was a local one up by where the jail was. So oh, okay. would not have been our first our, our first choice, but it was great because, you know, I obviously, you know, we didn't want to go to uh, you know, a Denny's, nothing against Denny's. Right. <laughs> but um, you know, we did want to have good quality food and they were great to us. They gave us a beautiful table. I know if you come to Peter uh, Luger's or something up there. <laughs> I wish. I wish. But uh I didn't remember the name of it, but it was a Steve Food and Steakhouse. Okay, and and it was great because it was about five o'clock, so it was early. It was empty. We got to hang. We spent I don't know probably three hours there, just rejoicing, you know, in the freedom and having him have the option to look at a menu and say, "What do you want?" Yeah, I mean, right. And he didn't know, rush us. They were great, you know. On on Andre's wife had you know taken him to to a store because she had brought clothes for him, so he ducked into the store in order to change clothes so that you know he wouldn't be in the clothes that the prison gave him to step outside so he was in regular clothes and i want to steal chip's job just one more question one more time right uh uh you want to andre you want to talk about that brief special phone call you had and of course you know well first before even that the rain that was hidden on the top of my forehead and in my hair and you know just feeling the heavens open up just flooding me with its joy of my release. I mean, I can remember Oscar and Sabine and Jeffrey and Nancy and my wife, Tamika, they just held their umbrellas down and 
they just allowed the rain to hit their foreheads in in my elation and just hugs and just that embrace was so impactful. And then, you know, as I was waiting for my order, um, Jeffrey was able to contact a very dear friend of mine from the inside named Fernando Bermudez. And Fernando also did a hell of a lot of time. I think he did about 18 years. 18, and yes. He himself was exonerated. Um, Fernando, you know, had, it's, it's very ironic that at that time, Jeff contacted Fernando because if you look at it, Fernando's case is the outlier case and it's very identical to mine. The difference is that Fernando's, um, the individual who actually committed the crime was still alive. And that individual, they was ever actually able to bring into the courtroom and identify him as the person who they assumed had did the shooting. Whereas me in itself, they were never able to bring bonkers into the courtroom. And I believe that was a transitional state. But, you know, as a whole itself, seeing Fernando's face. There was a video call like WhatsApp. You you two did time together, right? First of all, first of all, you know, I'm seeing a phone for the first time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, there's I, a I'm lot of changes. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm seeing a phone with a video call on it for the first time ever, you know, and I'm amazed at that first, you know, this technology that they're showing me and all of these type of things, as they're showing me these things, I'm just amazed at it. And when I saw Fernando there, it just automatically engaged that old thought process because we had... He had went his way. He had went to Sing Sing and I had stayed in Chuangong and we had separated. You know, we lost contact with each other. So just seeing him, you know, it just brought back those old memories that this fight that we both shared was complete. And, you know, it's evident of the man in the mirror when you look at that man through his eyes and you see yourself. Yeah. And while I was on the inside, when I looked into Fernando's eyes, I was able to see myself a lot of the times because he continuously told me, Andre, I'm innocent. And he was able to see the same reflection through him. And we were able to mirror that on that phone call, that video conference. So it was just amazing for Jeff to bring that into the fray. And it was just amazing to have Oscar and Sabine and my wife and Nancy present. Just the joy of actually having a real meal was incredible. I bet. And when you were describing, you know, that rain hitting your face, the the picture that popped in my mind was the cover of the movie Shawshank Redemption, which oddly enough is about a guy in prison for something he didn't do. That picture kind of popped in my mind. And then I'm like, well, I don't know if Andre's had a chance to see that movie because of how long you've been incarcerated. If you haven't, it's a very good one. I recommend it. Um, But to go back just for a second, when you were talking about your son saying that, I'm not going to lie, I got a little emotional listening to you tell that story because in similarity to mine right after my event happened my daughter was literally within a month my daughter graduated uh, high school and so Mm -hmm. i was allowed to go to the graduation and then immediately back home couldn't go to any dinner couldn't go to anything to celebrate and it's like almost you can't even allow yourself to have a good moment because you're immediately worrying if that's going to be your last moment. So I could almost not even enjoy my daughter graduating, wondering, am I going to see my son graduate? 
So it's the mental strain that they put on you is it's incomprehensible to people. If you're not in that situation, it's, it's, no, you I, can't I even agree. put it into words. Yeah. And and like Jeffrey alluded to, you can't even take, you can't even exhale. Cause when I got the phone call, when they told me that, that my case was dismissed, it was like, I'd been holding that breath for, you know, almost five years. And, you know, listening to you come on here and, and tell your story, you, you say it with such compassion, such conviction. I have no doubt, especially with the two gentlemen, this, you know, tagged along in this interview very, very soon, hopefully, because we know wheels of justice does not speed whatsoever, but I think you're going to be fully exonerated and, and everything will be behind you. I, I firmly believe that. And, and when you do, I hope in, in some way you can communicate that with me and, and I'll definitely be praying for that outcome uh, going forward. Thank you so much for, you know, expressing that. That means the world to myself, my family, and of course to Oscar and Jeff, because these guys fight for nothing. I mean, at the end of the day, um, Oscar's firm has paid out crazy amounts just to see me free. Mm -hmm. You know, these guys have the experience, but at the same time, they don't have the backing from the public at times because these criminals that they're fighting for, people want to see us in there because they believe that we belong there. But these individuals, they believe in us. And with that belief, with, with that belief itself, it's able to light a candle of hope in our minds on the inside. So, you know, I want to say, um, Wade, we won't forget Rafael Martinez ever. Mm -hmm. We will not forget numerous other individuals like Michael Cobb or Pedro Rodriguez or any of the other individuals mm -hmm. fighting mm -hmm. as hard as they can on the inside. Ronaldo Morgan and all these guys who are just fighting for their freedom. We continue to light that candle on the outside and we continue to have that beacon of hope for them. And I speak it loud, their names, because they need to be here free with us. Right. You know, these men, their lives was challenged and they continue to have that great hope and that fight within them. And they are encouraged by seeing what has happened with me by Oscar Michelin and Jeffrey Deskovic. Yeah, and Oscar and I, we have about five other cases that we're working on, other wrongfully convicted you know, in individuals, you know, people see, you know, the, the writing here on, on, on the background, you know, there's more Andre Browns out there. You know, we really need more public financial backing. You know, we have the Patreon campaign, you know, what if 25,000 people were willing to sacrifice three to $5 a month on a recurring monthly basis? That would give us close to a million dollars because, you know, Oscar and I are stretched. It's no mm -hmm. joke having this many cases, this many people's lives and freedom. We need to have other lawyers, paralegals, investigators, a lot of expenses involved. We need the public's financial support because it's a strain. Yeah. And these are not DNA cases. No, right. not DNA you know, cases. This is reinvestigation. You know, yeah. I worked on Andre's case, you know, five years of active working on it, you know, and um, obviously, you know, he spent 23 years fighting on the case. But the but the we could only do so many cases. Right. Um, and lawyers are reluctant to do it. They're reluctant to get involved, you know, um, because it's it's not a quick, oh, let's get DNA. Let's test the DNA. And if it's not his, you know, he comes home. Yeah. These are these are really hard cases to, to fight and overturn because someone identified them in court. And now you're going to try to prove 
that the system was wrong. And like we just talked about earlier, no one ever wants to say that. With DNA, they feel comfortable saying it mm-hmm. because right. science has exonerated them. They so, don't. They don't want to admit that the regular guy made a mistake, or the, us humans are, you know, prone to making mistakes. And because they were in that position, that unfortunately put Andre in prison, they don't want to admit that. And it's, it's a shame. And like Jeffrey just said, you know, these are not the only two guys that that this has happened to. There's a many. Luckily, I've been able to get these two guys on my program to share their story, and I hope I can continue to do so with. With other individuals, yeah, I can I'll definitely. Chip, you know, you, you you're great. You know, everyone's always you know they're so warmth and empathetic, and you're a great interviewer. I can definitely be the pipeline on other people. You know, just speaking to the point of this happening to many people. Uh, Three thousand two hundred ninety eight people exonerated just from nineteen eighty nine forward as of today, per the National Registry of Exonerations. And you know, um, the three of us are actually jumping on a plane tomorrow. We're going to the Innocence Network Conference, which this year will be held in Arizona. It's a who's who in the field, all the organizations, individual advocates, people doing policy work, people freeing, wrongfully imprisoned, and the exonerees and freed people themselves will be between 100 to 200 people there. So this is definitely a national problem. And one other thing, and speaking to frequency, you know, uh, Oscar, how many people is it now? Was it eight? Is it nine? I, I love it. It was the nine. Yeah, I mean, uh, Oscar has freed nine. He's exonerated. I should say exonerated. Yeah, nine nine people. Just wow. yeah, and you know, it's it's the there the pattern is there. You know, so many similar similarities in all the cases. You know, I think it's a blessing to be able to to do it to work on these cases. You know, when Jeff talks about that conference that we're going to, man, you it's it when you see the exonerees on the stage and they keep tallying the years that are lost. It's staggering. It's staggering. It's monumental that people will never get back. Yeah. Never get back. And, you know, and and even, even monetary, you know, recourse, it can only help so much because like you said, when you get out and you've never seen a cell phone before in your life, you've got so much catching up to do. It's hard to, to pack that much time and what you've missed. And and it's, it's insane. And not everybody who, who who gets vacated has a compensation. Yeah, some, some some states, states don't even allow it. Yeah, right. Don't even allow it, or give you twenty thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars. You know, and, and you know when you think about, like for example, if you went in at sixty and you came out at seventy-eight, all right. Well, you had your life. Yes, you lost eighteen years, but you had your life. But you when you go in prime. at eighteen or twenty-one, like Andre. That's your life. That's your real life. Yeah, that's, that's your, your prime years. 18, 19, 20 years when Jeff went in at 16. You know, you can't you can't replicate that. That's what makes you who you are as a human being. Yeah. And 12, 12 states, as Oscar referenced, you know, he talked about, you know, there's 12 states that don't compensate. And that's one of the things of the coalition group. It could happen to you, which I'm which I'm an advisory board member. I'm part of and Oscar's in support of our efforts. Just nearby Pennsylvania, one of 12 states that does not compensate people working to try to it's been three years already now. We've been, you know, organized advocacy work trying to get the legislature to pass, you know, compensation there. So there's a lot of states where people aren't aren't eligible for compensation. There's many other cases where not wanting to admit the error, the 
district attorney's office. They threatened to retry people. And listen, do you want to roll the dice? You want to go to trial? It's going to be another 10 months. It's going to be 12. We've beaten you once already. We've we've gotten the conviction once, beat you however many times on appeal. Yeah, you won a round, but uh, you want to keep going with this? Or you know this could be over tomorrow. If you'd like to go home tomorrow, just take a plea. Plead guilty. Yeah. You know, that's another dirty trick that they, they, that they what the Alfred plea. They offer you the Alfred, Alfred plea. Alfred, yeah. Alfred, Alfred plea, no little contender, just straight up guilty plea. Yeah, Some whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Guilty time you know. served. And then, but like you said, and, and I think a, a lot record, of people, your name is not there. There's no compensation. Your name's yeah. never cleared. You that, know, so it's, it's, that's the kicker. Plea. They it's, wave that carrot of freedom, but with that freedom, comes that price of like you said you've got it on your name you're con- you're like it or not guilty or you're convicted of that crime it's on your record that you were yeah. were guilty of it i'd like to bring on a guest that just had that we of we course were in the of his, uh hearing in 2011 uh proving that he didn't do it the da offered him time served he took it um got out but we never gave up and now the real killer just confessed and he got fully exonerated in march my friend uh, email McDowell. It's a hell of a story because you know that you know, he finally got his name back, but he took it. He took he took his time, sir. Even Absolutely. though I was on the case and we were fighting it and winning his hearing, how do you say no to going home? Yeah, it's, that's hard. It's very hard. Well, definitely, yeah, Oscar. We'll keep make in one other point when you know Andre oh. and Andre and Oscar had mentioned a couple of times Rafael Martinez, which is a case Oscar's working on. Maybe can you? Oscar, I mean, just the key fact in that case, which is yeah. going to blow your just mind. Quick. This is going to blow your mind. He's in 30 years. The DA is fighting us, and we found that his victim is alive. The murder victim is alive. Did you did yeah. you hear that? I, so I think that would probably cause a few issues in the courtroom. And I'm not a lawyer, but that that seems like it would would throw a monkey wrench into things. But the DA is not conceding. They say yes, that's important, but. It's not everything. What you got to present to these people to admit they're wrong, I don't know. Is Did you even say in, that, in that that's important, but it's not everything? I, I, what, what else is there? Yeah, I don't know what, what else, else there could there? be. Yeah. And it, it's funny that we're able to kind of laugh and joke about this, but in the end of all, it's so serious that, that they will oh, ride that, this what? to that point to where if they're saying somebody's supposed to be dead and they're visibly standing there in front of you and they still won't believe it, I don't know really what else you can do to people. Yeah, I mean, to us, to us itself, it it, it sounds funny, but to Rafael Martinez, who has over 36 years in prison, it's not a joke. Right. You know, this is an individual who has, he has a sentence, which is 237 years to life. So, you know, you in of itself, you see how you look down like, oh my God. I mean, thinking of that, you, your heart would drop out of your body. Well, just to get it, it, we had filed a 440 in that case, proving he was innocent before we knew the guy was alive. Right. Just wow. to be clear, we supplemented the motion, and now finally the conviction review unit is taking a look at it. But we supplemented the motion when we found out the guy was alive. And the DA at that time said, Well, look, you know, we may have been wrong on who the victim is, but there's still a dead guy. We still think he did it. I was like, okay, but if the jury would have known that it wasn't this guy, don't you think yeah. might, we might have gotten a different result? Yeah. It's just it's just crazy. We could go on and on and never end with story after story after story of of cases like this, cases we've lost that we yeah. knew the guy was innocent. We couldn't prove it. You know, 
I'd love to say that, yeah, I got nine guys out and I've won every one. That's not a true. That's not true at all. Right. We have, we've had guys we've got out and have had to come back. It is a fact. It does happen. Tasker Sproul is a client of mine. Had to go back after we got him out. The, the appellate division said it was wrong. There's tons of cases in the law books like that. So it's not just a, a you know, fantasy out there. It could happen. So we we really appreciate you giving light to these stories because that's what that's how change occurs. Right. People well, waking up and hearing that it can happen with real people. Well, I can't it, thank you guys enough for for coming on the show, Oscar, we're definitely going to stay in touch. I would be, uh, you know, more than happy to have some of those guys on. You, you mentioned Jeffrey, great. obviously anybody that you want to, you know, throw my way. It was great having you on. It was great having you on again for this. Andre, thank you so much for coming on and telling your story. And hopefully this is 100% completely behind you here in the very near future. Of course. Thank you so thank much you, for having me and Oscar and Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you to your audience for listening to this, because the more people we have who cry out, as there's a saying that Lady Justice is blind, she hears the cries of the people. We need you guys crying out for justice in all these cases. All right. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. I hope everyone enjoyed this story. Please like, share, comment on Facebook, spread the word on these issues. That helps more than you would realize, especially in cases like this. I'm Hollywood Wade. Joined by Jeffrey Deskovic, Oscar Michelin, and Andre Brown. Please tune in next week for an all-new episode of Crime and Entertainment. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. Well, boy, oh boy, we hope everyone enjoyed that episode on Crime and Entertainment. Please, folks, I encourage you, if you're in the position to be able to donate to a charity, uh, wrongful convictions and innocent projects, I think are one that often gets overlooked. Um, and it's definitely ones that need help because, you know, you heard Oscar mention this case. These are not cases that lawyers typically want to jump on there's not a huge payoff uh you know financially some states don't even offer you know any sort of of legal recourse if you've been wrongfully incarcerated so there's not a lot of initiative for lawyers to take these cases other than the fact they just want to help get people out of prison that really should not be there so i recommend maybe going to jeffrey deskovic's foundation checking out you know a way you make it help and donate because andre is not the only case of this folks uh jeffrey deskovic is not the only case of this rusperia who we've had on our show is not the only case there is multiple people thousands that have this has happened to and you heard Oscar there. I think the number he said was 3,000 and some change that have been fully exonerated. And that's not even counting Andre's case here because technically Andre, as of right now, hasn't been exonerated. His conviction has been overturned, but the, the district attorney in the Bronx area is still appealing it. So there's a slight possibility, as you heard us talk about, that Andre could wind up going back to prison. Now, obviously, we don't think that's going to happen. But the thing is, once it's already happened once, there's nothing to stop it from happening again. So, you know, obviously we wish Andre the best. We hope that, you know, they do not try to pursue this to bring back these charges. And we just want to continue to try to help any and everyone who's facing these situations. There's a lot of Christmases that we spend with our families that if we just sit back and think, you know, I, I think to myself, the 23 years, last 23 years of my life, all the Christmases I've been fortunate enough to spend with my family. And Andre had to spend that behind bars and my heart breaks for him. I got really emotional during this interview, probably one of the only interviews that I've ever, you know, got as emotional as I did because it really hits home. And it's something that people do not think about until they're in that situation. So I encourage anyone, 
If you're able and in the financial position to do so and donate and give, please look into doing something with the wrongful convictions cases and innocence projects and, and things of that nature. It could really, really be beneficial. You have no idea how it could help change a life and, and get a family back together. Uh, how you can help crime and entertainment, of course, is you can go like us and follow us on YouTube. Hit that notification bell. That way you get uh, notified when we drop episodes each and every week. If you're more of an audio listener, of course, we're on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, uh, Amazon. We're anywhere you can get your podcast, folks. So definitely go like, subscribe, rate, five stars, leave us a comment, tell us how we're doing. That really helps drive us up the charts. And spreading the word about the show, if you got social medias, share it on social media. Tag us. We're on Instagram at crime, the letter N, and entertainment. So crime, N, entertainment. And on Facebook at Crime Entertainment as well, uh, Crime and the And symbol. So follow us and like us on there. Share the stuff. We put out clips from our videos throughout the week. So share that on social media. That's one of the quickest and easiest ways to help us out with the show. We want to thank everyone for listening. We hope everyone enjoyed that episode with Andre Brown along with his legal team of Oscar Michelin and Jeffrey Deskovic. We want to thank those guys for coming on. I'm probably going to see if I can get Oscar back on for a uh, standalone interview because I know he's got a lot of stories, especially working with uh, Hurricane Carter. So hopefully we can line that up soon. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this episode. It was really, really important to me, and I hope everyone took away something from it. And that will do it from Crime and Entertainment. We are out of time. See you next week.